Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin, joined again today by Josh Blank, research director for the Texas Politics Project. Good morning, Josh. It's still morning. Yeah, good morning. It's definitely I mean, still morning. Uh, late morning. Well, it's morning still. Yeah, yeah. After morning, um, but not afternoon. So we're back after a, a extended holiday hiatus. Uh, you know, it's odd. To, I was thinking about the things that have changed and the things that haven't. <laughs> <laughs> from, you know, when we were meeting, we last recorded, I think, in early December. Um, be that as it may, 2022 is upon us, meaning that in Texas, in the Texas political world, a huge amount of everybody's bandwidth is going to be taken up by the midterm elections, uh, primaries, uh, March 1st, you know, really very soon. Early voting starts on Valentine's Day. Yeah. Sounds like a what, date. Like What a great date. Oh, for some of us. Uh <laughs> Nationally, most of the attention right now in terms of the election is being paid to the fight for control uh, of Congress. Uh, in Texas, the main focus, you know, probably at the media level is on the governor's race. Obviously, legislative races are important to people, you know, in the in the business. Um, combatants, as a friend of mine used to call people that work in the political world. It was a good division between combatants and non-combatants. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a non-combatant, but I'm interested. Well, you know, yeah, we're sort of in the middle there. Um, you know, this person was a was a lobbyist, and he was kind of being disparaging about a non-combatant, somebody's non-combatant spouse. So, but we talked a lot about the governor's race uh, uh, and the election in the podcast. And I guess this week, what we thought we'd do was, you know, take a first cut at the agendas that are likely to dominate both of the major party campaigns at the top of the bat, at top of the ticket. And I guess some of the context here is there's a lot of news coverage and, you know, we're talking to reporters, you know, the kind of reporter attention ramping up for both of us. And, and as people start to cover the campaign and come back from the holidays, you know, I, there's others like, there's an often there's a desire to say, what is this, what is this campaign going to be about? Yeah, or every time a new issue comes up to, to get the question, so, so is this what the campaign is going to be about? Yeah, this is the thing, right? right? Is it about marijuana? It's like, no, no, slow down. It's not about marijuana. So, you know, uh, as we've talked about this and we're, you know, sort of been gathering some data from it for a blog post or, you know, a research note on this, it seemed like a good time to to regroup on, on what, where you know, what the struggle over the agenda is going to look like. You know, on the assumption that the campaigns aren't going to agree on that. The campaigns try to set the agenda to their advantage. Um, and we should probably flag at this stage a little bit of a caveat, but not much really. At this stage, you know, despite the fact that Greg Abbott um, has to be given a substantial advantage in any reasonably clear eyed assessment of this race, um, in the general election race between he and probably Bitter O'Rourke, the party primary elections 
still have to take place. And there's a little a little bit of an irony there in that the party primary election is probably is a bigger consideration for the governor than it is for Beto O'Rourke. Now, there are good reasons for that. But there is a funny, I was thinking about this last night, there is a funny slight disjuncture there that's easily explained, but on the surface, I think, probably to people that don't follow this. You know, if the governor is so favored, why is does he have to worry a little bit more about his primary than the Democratic candidate does. Well, I mean, you know, there's a really, a really, really simple answer that doesn't look in any sort of big structural thing. The fact that, you know, he has slightly more well-known and more well-funded primary challengers, yeah. right? And, and not only does he have more, you know, well-known and more well-funded primary challengers, but they have been declared candidates for quite a while. They've been very active, uh, especially, uh, you know, former Senator Huffines more so than, than Alan West. But, you know, I mean, that just makes a big difference. And if, if we were to go and even go to, you know, reporters and people, you know, even if we were to go to combatants in the process and say, hey, can you give me a list of all the Democrats running for governor right now? They'd say, well, Beto O'Rourke, Joy, <laughs> Joy Diaz, right. right? And then they'd kind of say, oh, you know, there's that, that for, Forrester that's right. running it, you know, and that's the thing here. And so that's one aspect of it. Well, I think, and then the other piece is obviously, you know, given the relative balance of influence of the party, the Republican nomination is a lot better prize than the Democratic nomination, I would say. Yeah, it's a much better prize because, yeah, right, because you're most likely going to win. But then the other thing I actually thought you were going to say there, too, is that, you know, one thing that I think is, you know, about the Republican primary that makes it a little bit more of a challenge or more of an interesting contest is the fact that it, you know, it revolves around a set of disputes and grievances that are kind of perpetual in Texas politics on the right, which yeah. is basically this question of, well, who's the real conservative here? And even though Greg Abbott is clearly very conservative, and if anything, if you'd say if there if you'd say that before before this all started, well, you know, there's there's an outside lane on Abbott's right where he could be criticized. You know, I would say with the legislative session and everything that went on, he basically carpet bombed that lane. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah, I was going to stick with the lane metaphor and say, you know, he's basically put his RV in that lane and he won't move. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they, they keep trying to pass him, and he no, nope. <laughs> he veers over into the other lane and then, then veers back over as people are trying to pass him, and so you know, should we should we do another one? No, that's okay. It's enough metaphor. Um, so I think it's good to have that out there, is you know, because I think we inevitably, you know, we're inevitably in the course of this conversation going to default. To sounding like the primaries have already happened. Well, and you know, but, I mean, but just you know, when we get to this, and we're about to pivot here to the, the more what we talk, what we said we were going to talk about the the agenda discussion. But I mean, one of the things that I think the agenda discussion makes clear is there's sort of what we know, like what are the set pieces here, yeah. what we know based on public opinion data, what we know about how based on how the parties are constrained that kind of can tell us a little bit about what to expect. And then there's a bunch of stuff that we just don't know. These sort of you know things that could happen that'll affect things. The thing about you know Abbott's position in the primaries, he's in a very strong position. But as we get closer to actual voting, you know, is is Don Huffines going to put down, you know, $5 million on ads that make wild claims that Abbott feels he has yeah. to respond to? You know, Alan, I would guess at least that much, but we'll see. Yeah, Alan West <laughs> is very good at generating media attention and that kind of, kind of stuff. He has, I think, a, more of a direct line into some of the more activated, you know, people in the party. You know, is he going to say something that is, again, going to eventually require Abbott to respond? So far, he hasn't had to, but that's kind of the thing that's still out there that I think, you know, we're just, we got to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, the Abbott campaign is, you know, if the past is prologue for the present, um, the Abbott campaign will show a lot of discipline and, and have so far in doing a pretty good job of responding to the signaling without acknowledging them explicitly. So, exactly. Well, 
you know, I mean, and, and we're and we are now in the in the phase of the campaign now that you know, as I started with saying, okay, we're in twenty twenty two. You know, we're now. This has been kind of speculative and pretty subterranean mm-hmm. in a lot of ways up to this point. I mean, you know, in some ways, this campaign's been going on. You know, pick pick your point, but you know, certainly since the early period of the pandemic, when Governor Abbott responded in you know what we in retrospect was a relatively even-handed pragmatic way to the early uh, stages of the pandemic, say March, April, May, 2020, and then got punched on from the right by none other than Don Huffines and Alan West. Right. Um, so this has been going on for a while, but you know, in the last week or so, you know, we saw the governor do a couple of events. It really actually launched the campaign officially. That was, yeah, the formal launch of the campaign, at least as they put it, which seemed, right, to, which is seemed ridiculous. odd to me, but okay. Yeah. Um, was, you know, yeah. Um, the, the, fictions, the fictions that politics, you know, force us to expect sometimes, particularly campaign politics. But, you know, board, you know Greg Abbott did a big event. It is his announcement that emphasized the border was in McAllen, McAllen I guess. Yeah. Um, and Wes punched back at him right away in a pretty big way by, you know, using his kind of vector as a, you know, discharged former veteran um, or discharged veteran and former officer um, and criticized Abbott's border policies and the execution of it, emphasized the what I think has been a very interesting story recently. That is the difficulties among the, the state and National Guardsmen deployed at the border. Right, which is all kinds you know, of cross pressures there. Yeah, drug use, et cetera. Right. Um, you know, poor conditions. The next day he did something on on law and order and, you know, kind of a public safety thing, but also made some comments on COVID. You know, Huffines took that as an opportunity to, you know, punch on Abbott's COVID response, you know, going back to those early stages. Um, and that, I mean, that, and that, that like encapsulates the difficulty it really, here. Yeah. Well, no, but, uh, just, just to finish that, you know, just also, you know, and, and, you know, it was interesting, I think, in telling that, I mean, Huffine's bid for attention was to make sure everybody knew that, you know, he had not and will not be vaccinated. Right. Right. <laughs> Which also tells you a lot. Go ahead. Yeah. It's yeah. an odd litmus test we now face. Right. Yeah. No, but I mean, I think that encapsulates the difficulty, right? Which is that ultimately, you know, for, for someone like Huffines or West to claim that Abbott is not conservative, they have to say, well, wait, but like, you know, two, two years ago or, yeah. well, you know, but like Texas just got constitutional carry. It's like, right. yeah, they, they, yeah, just, yeah, it happened. Yeah, you know? I, I, I'd have done this sooner. I <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's basically the argument is, well, you know, it would have happened sooner. Or, and that's, and, you know, it's just. That's pretty small beer. I don't tough. think you're going to get, you're not going to get a lot of traction on, you know, saying that. I, I don't think, but, you know. And so, I mean, so, I mean, I guess, you know, what this means, obviously, for both, you know, Abbott facing, I would say notable, but, you know, s- you know, I I don't want to be too mean here, but, you know, likely irrelevant primary cha- challenge. And yeah. O'Rourke really facing. You know, I would say similarly, you know, nominal, but probably even less effective primary opponents. Yeah. You know, at this point, I think what you can look at this and say both candidates are really looking at the general election. I mean, you know, what's interesting in some ways more so than anything is the general election has has begun. And that's not, you know, it's not an exciting observation, but it allows us to start to learn something. And part yeah. of the reason I think, you know, we're interested in the agenda from from our perspective is two things. One you know, it's first of all, it's about an observation about, you know, oh, let me say this. Why is it so important to me? I would say is the fact that it gives us an insight into how campaigns are looking at the electorate. Yeah. You know, the issues they ter- 
you know, basically decide to emphasize, give us a sense of where they see opportunities and where they see liabilities and how they want to form this out. Now, ultimately, the second part is, is that in all else equal, you know, forget about the fact that, you know, how what percentage of people identify as Democrats or Republicans. Just think about the fact that, you know, if the election is about securing the border. Abbott's going to be in a pretty good position, right? right? If the electric is about, if, if the election is about shoring up the electric grid, you know, Rourke is probably going to be in a much better position than right. he would have been. So, this is sort of just the basic logic. But this is obviously a fluid space, and it's not like it's one issue, right? Okay, so let's, so let's use that as that. like the point of departure for you know, sort of unpacking this a little bit. Right. So, let's start with the, like the preferred Republican agenda, as you say, immigration and border security. You know, as we've said repeatedly to anybody that asks and to some people that haven't, right? Um, you know, is the core unifier and the core issue are the you know, these are the core issues for any Republican candidate, and probably you know, in, in terms of this whole primary general election thing, an ideal issue to land on because you know it, it works really in a lot of ways in both the primary and the general election. Yeah, to me, you know, immigration and border security is is just it's such a you know, winning strategic issue, all else equal for Republicans. And and I think, you know, and part of it is, number one, it's, as you already said, it overwhelmingly unites Republican Party voters. Uh, 68% so that immigration or border security was the number one issue facing the state in October of last year. 68%, almost 70%. If we were to take the top Democratic issues and add them all up, it would take somewhere about t- 10 issues to get to 70% of Democratic voters. And so it just gives you a sense of yeah. there's no there's no loss in focusing on this. Um, you know, and then not to mention the fact that the fact, you know, that essentially people are going to continue coming to the border. The numbers are not changing. They're not going down in terms of the number of migrants being apprehended at the border. And so when we also ask, you know, in terms of, on this question, do you think we should the state should be spending more? Is it spending too much, too little, the right amount on, on border security? Voters overall are about split. But among Republicans, almost 60 percent say that we're still spending too little on border security after, you know, increasing the amount we're spending dramatically in the last session. So on, so on, the, on the Republican side, there's no, there's no lack of appetite for this. It's not going to go anywhere. The, the policy space isn't going to change in some way that's yeah. going to make this, that's going to take this issue off the agenda. It's an albatross for Democrats, right? In the sense that, you know, the Biden administration is be, has a, you know, Dem- Texans have a very negative view of the Biden's administration handling of this Republicans overwhelmingly, but also in- increasingly Democrats too. Yeah. And the issue just is just not a winning. I mean, just to be honest, you know, it's not a winning issue for Democrats. I mean, if you think, I was thinking right. about, the, I was thinking about just the, the, the framing of this, you know, Greg Abbott is building a wall to stop it. Full stop. Right. For Democrats, you know, they sort of begin to say, well, wait, are we talking about asylum seekers? Are we talking about undocumented immigrants? Are we talking about the people who are already here but aren't documented, the people who want to come? And, I mean, there's something I think about this this morning, but, I mean, it's an issue that kind of reminds me of homelessness a little bit in the sense that for Republicans, it's easy to say, well, the problem with homelessness is having homeless people downtown. We need to get them out of there. Yeah. Whereas for Democrats, they say, no, the problem is, is really difficult. But if you're a voter and you think that this is a problem, whether it be homelessness or immigration— you probably give the advantage to somebody who has a seeming solution versus somebody who clearly right. doesn't. In other words, there's dissatisfaction. There's dissatisfaction with the current problem from both left and right, which makes it a, a difficult issue to deal with. You know, even even if Democrats or Democratic voters are unhappy with what Abbott is doing, or can be, you know, you can put something in front of them. They go, yeah, well, that's not the solution, but. Still a problem. But it's still a problem, and it's not clear what the Democratic solution is right. at this point. Right, and I think that's you know that's going to be a real problem for, for, for Beto O'Rourke. Okay, let's talk a little bit about public safety. And I think this is a little bit more amorphous, and I'm not sure. I, you know, I sometimes get the sense we're not maybe 
I don't know, maybe we don't, we look at this so slightly differently, but it seems to me that this is almost just, you know, this is almost like the reserve issue that for, mm-hmm. <laughs> for Republicans, you know, Abbott can talk about this. There are a lot of good touch points for conservatives that activate, you know, a pretty well-developed partisan cleavage and, you know, competing partisan positions on this. Some of this is very backward looking in a sense. It looks back to 2020 Mm -hmm. and the way that in that moment, the back the blue defund the police Mm -hmm. dynamic seems to have helped Republicans, particularly at the state, at the state level. They certainly talked a lot about it in campaigns. Um, You know, Republican consultants from Dave Carney down, Mm -hmm. you know, were pretty clear that they felt like they had good polling on this that gave them a good sense of where the general general election electorate was on this, let alone a Republican electorate. And they still seem, you know, ever ready to go, you know, to go to that, to go to that issue. I think on one hand, some of it is cooled a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, the, the. To the extent that it existed, the defund the police moment has kind of passed, you know, for the most part, you know. And again, I mean, I, I you know, there are still elements of it out there. Yeah, but that particularly... The, 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 re- the residue of it still exists, even if the movement has right, passed. Right, but it's not like, it's not as, you know, I mean, I, it, and part of it is that, you know, enough Democrats have, you know, it's kind of become a very standard Democratic position to go, no, that's not what we meant. Well, you know... And for it, a lot of Democrats, not all, but... No, but, it, but that's why it's such a great cleavage issue. You know, I was looking back uh, at our data on what what people wanted with respect to police spending in their local areas. Yeah. And, you know, not surprisingly, you know, about 60 percent of Republicans said it like their local police departments. They thought the funding should be increased either a little or a lot. But I think, you know, a sort of simple look at this would be to say, you know, the public safety issue is, you know, it speaks to suburban voters. We talked about a lot of competition in the suburbs. And and this is something that can kind of be a, a wedge issue among uh, suburban voters. But I think actually, you know, it's also a wedge issue amongst urban voters. And if anything, if you look at those numbers, what you find is that, you know, there's overwhelming support for increasing police funding in rural areas, but just a little bit. But then there's actually more support for increasing police funding in and around cities than in and around suburbs. And and among racial and ethnic minorities. And among racial and ethnic minorities. And other people have noted this who look at public opinion about the fact that, you know, the people, and we've noted this too, sort of in Texas, but, you know, the people who are sort of most gun-ho at the outset on sort of defunding the police were were, were usually white liberals. But if you look at the majority of Democratic voters who are non-white, they say, no, let's, let's, we don't want to do that. Now, this makes a lot of sense. Ultimately, if you think crime is an issue, you know, you, you want more police. And that's and that's true. And Democrats have kind of painted themselves into this, you know, terrible corner on this. Right. And so this is an issue that, again, I don't think, you know, it's just not an issue they have good messaging on. Because ultimately, right. for the messaging for them to become successful, they need a tragedy to happen. Well, and there is, and there is an objective, or, you know, not, you know, there is a, you know, a structural conditional piece to this, mm-hmm. which is that allowing for the usual mystery of nobody really knows that much about what drives crime. Yeah. But, you know, the crime statistics are showing more crime. Yeah, 100%. And I think that, and and that's the thing. And and the truth is, you know, public opinion towards crime and actual crime has, has, they don't really relate to each other. But right now, there is more violent crime in America, everywhere, Texas cities, other cities. It's going on. And this is an issue that allows, I think, you know, again, for, for Republicans to be, hypercritical of especially urban areas that tend to vote Democratic in the state, but to do so in a way that allows them to say, no, but we're trying to fix the problem. Right. And and not to kick the Democrats more like they need more kicking. But, you know, I mean, you know, the the, the modal position on this is not that hard to understand. Part of this does speak to the polarized discourse in the environment and, you know, 
what's out there and the media sphere and, you know, how hard it is to deploy nuanced positions in politics, especially now. It's always mm-hmm. a little hard, but, you know, it's not that, you know, intuitive that people that live in, you know, say, you know, majority black or Hispanic neighborhoods, um, you know, want to have good policing. They just want the police to be fair and not abusive. Yeah. You know, that's not very complicated. But I think if you just think about like a simple math problem here, you know, it's like there's a lot more crimes committed in areas with high crime than there are instances of police, you know, viol- you know aggressively right. violating the civil rights of people just just by the numbers. I mean, this right. is just the nature of it. And so if you're in an area with high crime, yeah, it doesn't happen. No, just, but... obviously happens. <laughs> Obviously happens, but if you just think about people's lived experiences, for the most part, if you're in an area of high crime, and even if you say like you, know, you don't necessarily love the police, you probably still want the police there to deal with the crime, and that's that's right. the thing that's underpinning this. It just makes it very difficult. And so we've got a couple of other things, and we need to move on. But I, uh, you know, for the for Republicans, I mean, what else is in the wings? I mean, I, you know, obviously public education is a lot of discussion of this, you know, both in the press, but you know, I've had a lot of discussion with kind of the consulting, you know, mm-hmm. combatants class, if yeah. you will, about the Republicans kind of using critical race theory, you know, in Texas, you know, in some other states, you know, the content of instructional materials, books and libraries, you know, as a, as a Republican effort to take this issue from Democrats. And Virginia, the Virginia governor's mm-hmm. race was the touchstone on this. But that seems to be out there. I, you know, I don't think that's set. Yeah. But I think it's it is something to watch. What, anything else come to mind? Well, I mean, that? I just think you know, obviously, you know, continuing to t- attack the Biden administration, inflation. Yeah, I right. think you know, I mean, yeah, well, I'm not this. an economist, but I'll leave that alone. But I mean, you know, you just expect that with Biden, you know, with the difficulties of governing, with COVID, with everything yeah. going on, and you know, just the expectation that the Democrat, you know, the president's party is going to have a hard midterm election. You know, yeah, I skipped over that. That's obviously a major. You know, I mean, the default is going to be, and it feeds back into the public safety and immigration wow. issues. The default is going to be nonstop attacks on on the Biden administration and hanging national Democrats around state Democratic necks. I'll just say the one thing about the public education thing that's interesting to me is just you know basically you take these these two sort of issues really, which is like sort of race and social issues in America and sort of the rights of LGBTQ plus people, which you can broadly classify as like social change and, you know, uh, and then you cross that with this issue of basically, well, what are, what are parents' rights and roles in their children's education? And, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, for Democrats, I think, remember, this is the Republican, just as, you know, you kind of get, you, you kind of apologize for us. These are the Republican agenda items. There's a reason these are the issues they want to yeah. talk about, which is why, because Democrats don't have an advantage. But on this issue with, you know, parental rights, basically, you know, you're forcing Democrats in the court saying, no, I don't think parents should have right. a say in their kids' education. That's the thing you have to think about, about how these issues work, is that, you know, there's a bunch of issues we're not going to yeah. say that either party really wants on the agenda. And part of it is taking that next step and say, well, what would you say in response to that? It gives a lot of Democrats. That's yet another reason to be unhappy with Terry McAuliffe, um, <laughs> who helped set, you know, not all his fault, but he did a particularly inept job with that. Um, so, okay, so the, the Democratic agenda, um, you know, O'Rourke has clearly signaled this, I think, since the day he announced his candidacy and in, the, you know, what seems to be his stump speech since then, uh, you know, the binding concept of all of this is to try to, you know, to, you know, get voters to respond to an argument that the, the Republicans, but particularly Greg Abbott, has been a bad steward of yeah. of what's going on in Texas. 
You mentioned grid reliability earlier and kind of the, the lead into this. Obviously, they are trying to lean on that. And data from our points supports what seems to be, I think, the emerging consensus. On one hand, Texans are concerned, right? And and skeptical about what's been done so far. Yeah, 60% express uh, disapproval uh, in October 21 of, of how the state leaders and legislature handled the grid. That includes 78% of Democrats, but also include 45% of Republicans. Only 31% of Republicans approved of how the state handled the grid. And so, and this was actually, and this is worse than when we measured sort of June at the end of the regular right. session. So, I mean, this is definitely a big area of, you know, I, you know, this is certainly an area of concern for Republicans, but I think, you know, Abbott's made clear in this, right, there's a gamble here, which is, unless we don't have a big storm and the power stays on. I can still say I fixed it if nothing else goes wrong. If nothing wrong. happens, then I fixed it. And, and that's certainly enough to get you through 2022, which sort of, you know, speaks to why that's a, a good but narrow path, but it supports the larger argument of, you know, do you like the way the state's being run? Right. And I, you know, part of it is, you know, the there's a, a little bit of a paucity of other candidates. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you are stuck with kind of gambling on this. You know, the other performance issue is COVID response. Now, you know, on the upside... You know, we've had, what, more than 70,000 Texans die from COVID or COVID-related you know, related illness. Um, you know, as part of the response to the criticism on the right, Greg Abbott has said very little about the pandemic. Yeah. You know, I, I've not gone and looked closely at this, but, you know, you know, licking my thumb and testing the wind, I'd say, you know, it's been at least a year since Greg Abbott gave any kind of major address or any kind of you know, commentary, public event on COVID. Certainly no, the nothing comes to mind that wasn't, you know, sort of in, in a more political direct response as in, you know, indirect response to the Biden administration vaccine right. mandate or something right. like so, that. Yeah, no, no, let's put it this way. Yeah, no public health address. Right. We haven't seen um, him with the doctors somewhere, you know, right. in a press conference. You know, but, you know, I, you know, this has, you know, the Democrats have the same problem with this that they have with grid reliability. Right. I mean, or a similar problem. Right. On, on terms of the reliability of the grid, in the absence of a more recent stimulus, you need something to activate that lack of confidence. And that's where the gamble part you mentioned comes in. Well, yeah, I think, you know, Omicron is really a great example of this right now. I mean, it's it's rampant. Right. <laughs> you well, know, I mean, and, and, you know, and if anything, you know, depending on, you know, your social circles, who you hang out with, where you go, it could either look like a ghost town or it could look like business as usual. Right. And so there is a certain amount, like, people have gotten used to this, so it's hard to imagine at this point what would be, like, the shock. Yeah, I mean, that's why I say they're kind of similar, but not, you know, I think I think the threshold, I mean, the, 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 the similarity is you need something to really jolt people. The difference is that the grid reliability issue came from, you know, one major event that is now receding in memory with no subsequent reinforcement. Right. The COVID thing is a little bit the opposite in which people become desensitized if you were already inclined to be, you know, not especially concerned about this or to discount the threat or to see other things as outweighing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as much as the numbers on Omicron have, you know, sort of thrust this back into public attention, you know, the interpretive frames of this from people cognitively have already been set. You know, if you were if you were if you were inclined to underestimate the threat or to you know to, to to see the threat is not that huge or to see it as not that you know not as big a deal or mm-hmm. you know something that you're just taking into account in the your normal life if you're taking it into account at all, you know this isn't doing much for you. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, the thing about, I mean, the COVID, the focus on COVID, again, I think it only makes sense in the broader sort of, you know, the broader concept of stewardship, yeah. you know, the broader sort of, I mean, I've been joking, but, you know, sort of, or we're going out and saying, well, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Right. right. Kind of thing. And I think this fits to that, right, in the sense that, you know, obviously, you know, you take sort of the Democratic and Republican views on COVID and sort of the partisan polarization around the issue. And you say, okay, whatever, put them in their camps. But there are definitely, I think, you know, a lot of independents we've seen in our polling over the course of the poll who kind of look at the way that, you know, I'd say Abbott's response was clearly guided a lot by the politics around COVID more so than the science around COVID. And at some point said, well, this is, you know, this is a problem. And you see that right. in negative valuations. Now, the question for O'Rourke, it seems to me, is, you know, is that one, is that attitude durable? Is it, is Especially it- Especially among independents. Among independents. Is it determinative, Right. Right. And, you know, can and part of that is, well, that's kind of up to the campaign. Can they keep that in front of people? Now, again, it's yeah. not 100% of the campaign. It depends on the people, too, right? It depends on what else happens. But I think the idea there is to see, you know, can we keep this sort of mismanagement idea in front of people for as long as we can? And I think this also fits to the stuff we're not talking about, which is we're not talking about a bunch of the issues that came through the legislature, which I think, you know, if you're Democrats, you know, I think you may have at some point said, oh, man, there's so many things we can campaign on in this state. We're going to campaign on voting rights. We're going to campaign on abortion. We're going to campaign on guns. And we haven't really brought up any of those three issues yet. Right. Well, and I think that's been out there in the in the O'Rourke discourse, and there are parts of that that are, I think are in the speech. You know, the kind of Greg Abbott is out of the mainstream and not listening to not listening to Texas. And that's the version of it, right, is to say, because I think, you know, again, this goes back to the whole, why are we not talking about this? Well, look, you know, does O'Rourke really want to litigate his position on guns? I don't think it's as bad as as, as people think it is, uh, right. given the, the, the steps to the right that the state has taken. You know, does he really want to litigate, you know, exactly where he thinks, when and to what point he thinks, you know, a woman should be able to obtain an abortion? He might, and he might have to, but I don't think Abbott really wants to have that conversation either. I think that kind of is a, an exogenous shock, as we say, that you throw that into the campaign and make that a big thing. Yeah. It's not clear exactly how, you know, that's going to shake out for either side. Um, and so for O'Rourke, the best thing is to package all that together and say, this is like, look, Abbott's not focusing on the right thing. This is about stewardship of the state. This is about keeping the state as great as it is, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what the legislature did at his prodding was, a ma- was, was way out of the mainstream. Do you want more right. of that? Well, and it seems to me that, and it's still early, and we're still in the yeah. you know I, we're still in the in the primary phase, you know. And as I'm just sitting here thinking about it, I, you know, there's kind of a two step message that is would be helpful to O'Rourke, all things being equal, mm-hmm. you know, which is another thing to consider before we get out. But you know, it, it seems to me if you could say, you know, as you were saying. Are you better off than you were four years ago? I'm sort of I'm sort of yeah. making the campaign ad in yeah. my head, you know, block letters of you know, x amount of Texans without power, you know, x amount of Texans without health insurance, without health insurance, x amount of you know, Texans dead from COVID, you know, what's his resp- you know, you know, you know, you know, own your record, a kind of own your record argument and kind of try to make Abbott look like somebody who doesn't want to own his record and just wants to blame Joe Biden. Right. You know, take response, you know, why won't Greg Abbott take responsibility for his record? Joe Biden's not the governor of Texas. Right, exactly. So, you know, now, do I think that, I don't think that's the magic bullet, (laughs) but I, but I think as of now, that's probably what they need to do that. And again, you know, we always say this, you know, that's not going to happen in a vacuum. I'm sure, you know, I, I mm-hmm. suspect that, you know, the, the Abbott campaign will have gamed that out and will have responses and, you know, 
Well, and in some are, ways they already have, right? I mean, yeah. their first their first ad. No, they're trying to get O'Rourke, in front of it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the first ad, uh, the first O'Rourke ad, you know, the wrong way O'Rourke ad. Based now, you look, it's not like it's an amazing insight to say, oh, you know, we're going to call him a socialist and say he's, you know, right. too liberal. But they are trying to get in front of it. They're trying to say exactly that, which is, yeah, I mean, you know, you can say that, but look at the jobs, look at the growth, look at the unemployment rates. Right. You know, everybody's moving to Texas. This guy's going to ruin it. Yeah. You know. You know, so I guess the you know the the thing is, can you you know can you redefine the it and ruin it? And that's a pretty tall order, yeah, given is. you know a lot of the predicates. So I mean, you know, now we do all the caveats, which is you know, the context of this right now clearly, you know, supports you know is favorable towards Abbott towards Repu- the same way it's favorable towards Abbott towards Republicans nationally. Mm-hmm. The governor and, and Texas Republicans get to enjoy some of that, um, you know. They've used their incumbency to secure their position in the electoral system and to, you know, shore up their advantages through redistricting. And while one can argue about the extent of the changes in the voting laws, you know, the changes in the voting laws that came in the last session, you know, don't do anything to help Democrats and on balance advantage Republicans. Yeah. And I'll just say this. They probably give it in reality, they probably give a Republicans a a slight advantage in the sense of, you know, the effect on whatever the vote share might be is probably, you know, I would expect it to be pretty minimal, just knowing what I know about the effect of these types of laws. But I think that's kind of the point here is that, you know, this is a competitive state and we're talking about this. And, and you know, I think what's interesting in all of this is the fact that, you know, I can, you can look at these agenda items that we've laid out and you can see, you know, who the target is, right? Yeah. I mean, immigration and border security is a good issue because it unites Republicans. It's something that, you know, he's going to be strong with among independents. And, you know, there's going to be some Democrats who, if immigration and border security is what they're concerned about, you know, they're probably going to cross over, right? Public safety, similarly, Democrats don't really have, you know, a good response to the public safety right. argument from Republicans. They have no response really to Biden, especially if they can't pass more laws. And if they do pass, you know, a big, you know, another big uh, social policy, which doesn't seem like they will, they're going to have to defend it. So that's, you know, there's nothing really there. Um, so. Well, I, I think what that all sort of elaborates is, you know, that structural advantage in the environment is still there. Yeah. And, you know, absent kind of some dramatic change in context or a, a kind of bolt from the blue, you know, I mean, the handicapping on this race looks like it is. And I think that's, ex- you know, I think, you know, what I interpret what you're saying is that's expressed in these agenda items. Yeah, right? what, what's I mean, ex- yeah, I mean, what's expressed to me, I think, more than anything is the fact that both both candidates know that they have the support of almost 100% of their partisans. Right. And we know from previous elections that support from 100% of your partisans and good turnout generally means we're going to have a relatively close race here. And by, by relatively close, I mean somewhere between zero and 10 right. points. You know, Abbott's not going to win. I just, I'll say right now, I don't like to make predictions because I think it's stupid. I don't think, you know, Greg Abbott's going to beat better work by 20 points. Right. You know, so like we can kind of, you know, that, I'm comfortable saying well, that. Well, you can put that in your little Matty Iglesias yeah, style I'll, prediction meter 80, 80 or whatever, whatever they're calling it. 90% the certain. Pundit check that day that, uh, uh, yeah. God, Dave, Dave Weigel. The Dave Weigel gets credit for doing, and I remember when he did that. Well, in, I'm not doing Slate, and it was a big thing. Well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> well, I try not to make predictions, and I, you know, yeah, I don't want to do that. Either, but I mean, really. but the main point here, I just it would make is that you know, I I want to do it for other people though. But but you look at this and you say, you know, public safety kind of touches the suburbs is kind of a wedge issue. Education kind of touches the suburbs is kind of a wedge issue. O'Rourke and kind of asking this sort of more general question. Look, Democrats are not voting for Abbott. This general question about, you know, stewardship, that's, again, it's reaching out to independents. It's reaching out to people who they're trying to define this election for 
who may not vote regularly. And I think right. that all the activity you're seeing down around the border, all the work the Republican Party is doing all along the border to try to find new voters, to uh, put local candidates up for local offices, uh, all the focus that Aurora is having on the border this time as opposed to last time, that's all a reflection, I think, of, of trying to find, you know, again, loosely attached voters. And the reason I just think that's important in this is that, one, it reflects the fact that they know how to turn out their voters and that they know that if they do that, it's relatively close. So who's left? Right. But then I think the other piece of it is when you have loosely attached voters, what do you have? You have people who aren't really – they're not paying attention to it like we – us psychos. So this is why the agenda really matters because for those people, when you say if you don't really pay attention a ton of attention to politics but you're going to vote in 2022, well, is this election about securing the border or is this election about you know, bringing back, let's say, you know, competency to state government? If it's the first one, you're probably going to vote for Abbott. If it's the second one, you're probably going to vote for Aurora because you don't have much else. Right. And that's why these. That's why this agenda control thing is so both important but also kind of telling. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's also why we're seeing so much attention to even the hint of less loosely attached voters, mm-hmm. for example, in the RGV. And that's foreshadowing to something we'll talk about in the future. So uh, with that, uh, welcome back to the uh, the second reading podcast after we've been on a little bit of a hiatus, but we're kind of back in the saddle now. Uh, thanks to our, to Josh for being here. Thanks to our crew in the liberal arts development studio in the college of liberal arts at UT Austin. Thanks to you for listening and tune in for future podcasts. The second reading podcast is a production of the Texas politics project at the university of Texas at Austin. 